Hey, got to welcome at home or wherever you are in the world if you're watching online. Uh, welcome, welcome. I say welcome, but we're in your household probably, or in your car, or in McDonald's, wherever you're watching live streaming, so just want to say hi. Hey, before I get into my sermon, you know, there's, there's um, power in testimony, and some of you will be aware of a young woman that um, the church has been praying for, not someone that we're connected with relationally here in New Zealand, but I'd just like to invite Heinrich up. All right, Heinrich, if you could pop up. Cool. Thank you. Woo! Ah, morning, all. Um... So, LaSalle's nephew, um, their daughter is 18 months now, and she's been in ICU for the last two weeks or so. Last weekend, they actually did some tests, and they found out uh, they did a lumbar punch, and it was meningitis, and also septus, blood poisoning. And, uh, but so bad that they actually called the parents over Saturday evening saying... You need to come and sit now. It's, it's, yeah, she's not going to make it overnight. And we started praying. We, I mean, some elders know about it. We, friends, groups, WhatsApp groups, everyone started praying. She went home yesterday. Yeah, so it's not bad. It's not bad. Thanks. That's awesome. Father, we thank you for that young girl, Lord. We just pray a blessing on her wherever she is. And we speak health and life and life in abundance. And amen. In Jesus' name, amen. Cool. Hey, Easter Sunday. Woo! Um, I've been praying and thinking about Easter Sunday a wee bit. And what I'm going to do today is something a little bit different to your standard Easter message. And I've heard it once said that different is okay. I was going to joke and say a wise man once said, but I'm just quoting myself. That's not a good look. (laughs) A wise man once said. Um, And so we're going to do something a little bit different this morning. What we're going to do is instead of focusing on an emotive, personal, people-focused message, which is not anything necessarily wrong with that, I want to focus on Jesus this morning. We are going to share and we're going to talk and we're going to unpack the person of Jesus, who he was, if he even existed, and if he did exist, who he was. Um, And we're going to unpack that in a second. So, Father, I just thank you for your presence this morning. Lord, we pray that as we get into your scripture, Lord, that you'd be present in the room. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, I remember a couple of years ago, um, I was talking with my father, who is a practicing Catholic, has been for for 40 plus years. And um, I'm not having a go at... Uh, Catholicism or anything like that. But I will tell you about a conversation that I had with my father. Um, He's very, if you even talk theology, which is the study of God or the study of uh, the the Bible, if if you even start to pull things or ask questions, he gets very uneasy and doesn't want to talk about it. And I think one of the reasons upon reflection is because If I start to ask him questions he doesn't have the answers for, he feels very wobbly and he doesn't even want to go there. And uh, so anyway, we were just talking one day and I just tried to, I really wanted to ask him a couple of questions. I said, look, as a Catholic, and again, I'm not having a, that's not my focus this morning, but as a Catholic, you have a really, really, really big focus on Mary, 
right? Most of us are somewhat aware of the Catholic faith. And you have a real strong focus on Mary. I'm just wondering what your theological standpoint is for that focus. Like, can you show me through the Bible? I'm not having a go. We're just sitting down having a cup of tea. Can you talk to me about what that is? And he couldn't. He said, it's because that's what I've always learned. That's what I've always been taught. I said, okay. So I started asking him a couple of questions and he didn't have the answers for. Now, I'm not picking on my, my dad. We've all been there, right? Where we've just, when someone's asked the question, we actually sometimes don't have the answer for. I don't know about you, but I don't, I'm not a, a wealth of knowledge. So I, I get that, but I asked him and he just could not, he could not unpack the reasons he believes what he believes. It was simply because he'd always done that and that's what had been given to him and that was the package deal and he didn't really have any reason why this, this or this or if there was any difference between what we would say uh, dogmatic Christian views versus maybe traditional Catholic views. And so you know, I've been thinking about this verse, First Peter 3.15. It says, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason, for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. So Peter is saying, hey, we should all, to a certain degree, be able to say, this is why I follow Jesus. Do you think that's fair as Christians? And if you're a guest here this morning, if you're someone who's never been to church, you should, you are allowed to ask Christians and say, come on. I heard a pastor person say this once that I'm allowed to ask you, why do you believe in Jesus? What is your reasoning? And the Bible says very clearly that we should always be prepared, but we do it lovingly, we do it gently, and we do it in respect. So, with this kind of theme, with this kind of lens, we're going to go through a couple of questions today. Um, and I just really felt in my spirit to do this, to, to look at two questions. Did Jesus exist? And if he did, who was he? Now, the interesting thing is, uh, um, this is a bit of a strange message for a Sunday. We're going to get to some nitty-gritty stuff down the end, don't you worry. But um, I was... Uh, talking to a, uh, another pastor friend of mine, and he's doing a similar message this morning. We've swapped some ideas, which is great. Um, and then randomly, um, uh, Bronwyn McAvener sent me a video clip of her uh, uncle, and he was talking about this stuff as well. And I thought, okay, this is cool. I'm, uh, I think I'm in this spot where God wants us to go. So there's two questions. Did Jesus exist? And who was Jesus Christ? Uh, and to answer that, there's three ways we can do that. We can go to classical historians. We can go to people that were around first century Israel when Jesus was there. That's the first one. We can go to Jewish context because the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Jewish people, they recorded that because they didn't like that. So there is oral tradition. There are some writings about what happened with this guy called Jesus. And again, with the classical, so you've got Greco-Roman um, authorities who have nothing to do with the Christian faith writing about this, saying, this happened, this is what it looked like. Then you've got the Jewish people who, uh, so we're answering that first question, did Jesus exist? We've got the, uh, the Jewish people who would rather he just went under the mat, but he didn't. Uh, and so they're talking about it as well, which is probably a good indicator that if they're talking about it, it might have happened. And then the third category is the Bible itself, the Christian uh, canon, which has a lot of information about whether Jesus was real. And uh, you don't have to read too hard 
into the New Testament to find facts um, about Roman politicians, about who the Caesar was, the different places. All of this information is, uh, is in agreement with uh, secular information about who was here, what was happening. So there are a lot of similarities. So what we're going to do is we're going to go through those three. The first one is a guy called Gaius Cornelius Tacticus, uh, which is a very Romany sounding name. Um, and he wrote a whole bunch of stuff. Um, Gaius Cornelius Tacticus was a Roman senator, an orator, an entographer, and arguably the best of the Roman historians. And he wrote this, um, and he wrote this book called The Annals. And in that, he, we're just going to get through this quickly. He's talking about Nero and a couple other bits and pieces. But down the bottom, completely aside from anything Christian, he mentions, oh, and there are these Christians, spelt wrong, which I'm like, I, I, I'm with you. Uh, uh, the founder of his name, Christ, he had been executed in the reign of Tiberius by the procurator Pontus Pilate. So again, completely different source to anything Christian stating about Jesus. And here's the four things he says. He uses the name of Christ. Uh, Christian's name came from Christ, executed under Pilate, and during the reign of Tiberius, all of which correlate with what we learn in the Bible, right? So that's the first guy. Then we've got Josephus, who is a Jewish priest. And anyone heard of Josephus before? Fairly well known. Um, Josephus, Josephus, ugh, Josephus is a Jewish priest and historian of the Middle East who grew up as an aristocrat in the first century Palestine and ended up living in Rome. So Josephus, he says this, and he wrote a book, The Antiquities of the Jews. Um, and he is talking about some stuff that happened, and he's talking about a guy called James. Now, there are a lot of James he talks about, and there are a lot of Jesuses, because that was like a cool name. That was like, it was a really cool name of the time. So it would be like the equivalent of Andre. Um, <clears throat> no, it would be the equivalent of like Sam or uh, Rob or Mike, that, those sorts of names. And um, the way that he defines that person is by saying, oh, he has a famous brother called Jesus. So the brother of Jesus who was the Messiah. So again, a Jewish Sadducees, who had nothing to do with the Christian sect, is saying, hey, look, you know that guy, Jesus? Th this is the brother of him. So again, it wouldn't make sense for Josephus to be talking about a guy who didn't exist, right? So another person who's not a Christian saying, this definitely happened, this is who he is. And he's talking about he did surprising deeds and that he was the Messiah. He goes on to say that he was crucified, um, and the people who loved him did not give up affection for him. He rose again on the third day. He was restored to life. And this was prophesied about. This is a guy who's anti this Christian sect. Writing and saying, this happened. And then the last one was a guy called Lucian of Samosta. And this is hilarious. This is... Uh, he would be the equivalent of someone like Richard Dawkins today. He did not like anything religious. He did not like Christians at all. And he was having a go. Like he was writing a Facebook post that was like mocking and all that sort of stuff. This is the equivalent. But the funny thing is, what he does here is he clearly identifies that Jesus was a real person, that Jesus did do these things. So 
thank you, Lucian. I'm sure he'd be very upset with us. <laughs> he's like, that's not why I wrote this. Um, so he's having a go, and he said, look, they were doing this, and they, he's, he's saying for having convinced themselves that they're going to be immortal and live forever, the poor wretches despise death, and furthermore, the lawgiver persuaded them that they're all brothers of one another, and after they've transgressed one by all denying the Greek gods and worshipping that crucified God, you know, he's trying to have a go. And I'm looking at that and going, he's pretty, he's pretty close. I would agree with that. Yep. Um, but again, he's mentioning who Jesus is, that what he did. Jesus, if you've never heard this before, if you're a guest here this morning, maybe you don't come to church a lot, you know, Jesus is considered to be a historical figure. So he existed as a man. His personal name was Jesus. He was called Christos in Greek. He had a brother named uh, James. He won over both Jews and Greeks. Jewish leaders of the day expressed unfathomable opinions about him. Pilate rendered the decision that he should be executed. His execution was especially by crucifixion. He was executed during Pontius Pilate's era and governorship over Judea. This is all from non-Christian writings. This is really good evidence. I've heard it once said in Bible college, there is as much evidence that Jesus existed as a man as there is of Julius Caesar existing. There's enough evidence from enough different sources that says, yes, he does. Most secular historians now concede that Jesus was a man, Jesus did live, and yeah, sure, maybe, I don't know about the rest of the stuff, but he definitely existed. He, he was killed by uh, Pilate. There's enough information that people go, look, I'm, I'm not sure about the rest of it, but yeah, this guy did exist. Did Jesus Christ exist? Yes, he did. So answer to the first question. <laughs> yeah, it is good. We knew this. But what I wanted to do today is I'm aware that we have a couple hundred people in this room. Some of you have been historians and theologians of the faith. Some of you, this is your first time, and you're here for a baby dedication. And so my hope and my prayer is that wherever you are, like Lyndon said, you know, associate pastor, he said, oh, that's good, Jesus does exist. And, uh, and that's good, he's happy about that. And he knew that. But I realize there's people here that don't know that. And so I wanted to reaffirm that to you. And if you are the person that does know that, my hope is that you can have a strength and some knowledge. Someone asks you, well, I don't think Jesus was even a real man. And you can be like, <clears throat> one moment, please, while I get out my phone. Uh, there was the Cornelius fella. He said he was around. Uh, there was this guy, Josephus. He said he existed. Uh, this other guy called, it sounded like Samosa, but it wasn't quite. It was like Samosta. Um, and you can quote these guys. You can write them down. And there's a lot more as well. You know, C.S. Lewis said this famous thing. He said, when you read the New Testament, you are left, if you're trying to look at it analytically, you are left with three options about Jesus. It's called the three L's. Has anyone ever heard of C.S. Lewis's three L's? He says, Jesus was either a liar, a lunatic, or he was Lord. Now, lunatic, you know, in 2021 is probably not fair enough to say, but, you know, it followed, he wrote this in the 30s. It's okay, it, you know, what he was trying to say is, you know, mental health issues, someone that was potentially crazy. So when you ask that question about liar, was Jesus a liar? And we're looking at this, you know, from an analytical point of view, you ask yourself the question, 
why would Jesus lie? Let's take the lunatic side out of it for a second because we're going to get there. Why would Jesus lie about who he was? And all of the miracles that were seen by many, many people, why would he do that? Let's put aside the lunatic. Well, maybe because he wanted to have wealth. Do you read in the New Testament anywhere where Jesus was particularly worried about being wealthy? No. What about position? Perhaps he was lying because he wanted position and importance. When you read the character of Jesus, do you see anything about him being, you know, putting himself above everybody else? Is that a common thing that you read in the Bible? No. Okay, so we can take that off the list. What about friends? He had some friends, but people turned away from him. You know, people were following him around, and then when they said, look, give us more bread, and he says, look, I have a bread of life, not just bread. He said, let me talk to you about that, and everybody just left except his 12 disciples. You know, he, he had close friends, but it wasn't like he was in this for popularity. Did he do it for glory, you know, to make himself look cool? Did he have language that said, look at me, I am amazing, you need to worship me just because I'm cool? No, he always pointed to the Father. So, what? and then there were eyewitnesses that, you know, saw him after he was resurrected. You know, 500 people saw him. Why would a man go to a cross and have his hands nailed to a cross if he was a liar? You know, analytically, we can look at this and go, it just doesn't make sense. Unless he was a lunatic. Unless he was crazy. That would make more sense. So, let's look at that one. Where is the evidence? You know, when you look at someone who's got this type of, you know, like if someone said to me, hey, I think I'm the reincarnated, uncreated creator, I'd be like, oh, cool, 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 cool. Um, I've got some questions. <laughs> and uh, I would be looking for a few things. I would be looking for some narcissistic traits. I would be looking for someone that uh, is a bit of a megalomaniac. I would be looking for someone who thinks, um, you know, grandiose thoughts about themselves without any evidence. And when we look at the evidence about him being a lunatic, we realize, hey, he was really intelligent. Now, there can be people with mental health issues who are extremely intelligent, for sure. He was extremely loving. And here's one that flies in the face of that. He was empathetic. A lot of people who have major, major psychosis and mental health issues are not empathetic. They're not caring and loving and graceful and empathetic. So the evidence here, when you're looking at that, doesn't quite suggest that he was crazy. And then you've got people like tax collectors who were relatively intelligent people who were following him and who died for him. They didn't think he was crazy. You know, there's no evidence in the New Testament where people are saying that he is crazy. They thought he might be lying. So again, there's no evidence that he's crazy. So we're left with, when we go through this, we're left with the fact that he must be Lord. Sherlock Holmes uh, said this. He goes, once you eliminate the impossible, whatever remains, no matter how improbable, must be the truth. It's impossible to believe that Jesus was lying about who he was and yet willingly allowed himself to be executed in the most painful way imaginable just to keep up the facade. It's equally impossible to believe that if, we, if he were lying, that he'd be able to perform the signs and wonders that we see in the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And yet we know from not just the Bible, but from other texts that he did this. 
It's impossible to believe for the same reason that he was a lunatic. There's no character traits or evidence to point to this. So what did God do? If he's not a lunatic and he's not a liar and then he is the Lord, there's one thing that he could have done, what God the Father could have done to reassure people that this is my son. Can I have those people I've asked, those four or five guys, can I get you up for a second? And um, I want you to turn to the person next to you for 30 seconds and just go through that, those three L's and see if you can come up with anything there. Any evidence you think that would suggest that he was a liar or a lunatic or he's the Lord. I want you to look at it from that perspective for me. Could you do that? You have one minute. Off you go. You unravel me with a melody. You surround me with a song of deliverance from my enemies till all my fears have come. Okay, 10 seconds. Okay, here's the thing. It isn't just a, uh, uh, we don't just have to rely on some of this evidence. God did something really, really, really cool. In the Old Testament, remember when we're talking about Jesus, we're talking the start of the New Testament. And so they, were, they read the Old Testament. Every single Jewish boy and, and Jewish family knew the Torah. They knew the Old Testament scriptures. They didn't call them the Old Testament scriptures, but they knew them well, okay? And there is continuous talk through a whole bunch of different people about um, a Messiah, someone who's going to come. Moses wrote about him. Isaiah, Micah, Hosea, Zechariah, and even King David wrote about this person who is coming. Now, here's the thing. Imagine if I've got here is my wedding ring, uh, and here is my wife's wedding ring. These are really important to us for obvious reasons, but also these rings, uh, Hannah's has been remelted and reshaped, but these rings are really special to us as well because these were my parents' rings. So back in 1974 uh, at a Catholic church in Hamilton, these rings were used to signify their marriage, and obviously their marriage didn't work, but I really believe in a God that restores and redeems. And so I was like, I want those rings, and I'm going to use it as a symbol that God is a restorer and God is a redeemer. So these rings, wings, these rings are really special to me. So, Nikki, hold on to those. Now, here's the thing. If I said to Nikki, here, I want you, there's going to be a transaction of something really important. These wedding rings that mean a lot to me. And there's going to be people that come and go, and they're going to come and ask you for a wedding ring. Okay? But this is what I want you to do. I want you to give the wedding ring to the person who's wearing a Cornerstone t-shirt, has a brown hat, has a medium-sized poo bear, 
and has some flowers, okay? And so if, the, if there is someone else that comes along that doesn't fit that bill, just say, no thanks, go stand over there. Okay, can I have our first person come on up? Oh, okay. What do you think? Yes or no? Brown hat backwards? No, go stand over there. Sorry, close but no cigar. So there were some really clear instructions. Brown hat backwards, medium-sized Pooh Bear. This is the person I'm telling you to give this stuff over to. Can I have the next person, please? He's got his T-shirt backwards. <sighs> Wrong person. Go stand over there. Next one. That's not a Pooh Bear, and that's not flowers. He's close. No, you don't get a wedding ring from your wife either. And last one, this is, everybody, this is Horatio. Everyone give Horatio a big round of applause. All right, and you ask, and you give them because he fits the bill. The, uh, hopefully you can see the, uh, the picture here that me, uh, being God, I have said to everybody here, hey, look for this in the Messiah. Other people will come. And they'll look close. I mean, look, we've got a hat backwards, cornerstone t-shirt, and a poo bear. Not quite. And it could almost be, and you could almost make that work, but not quite. And in the Old Testament, there are literally hundreds, over 400 Old Testament prophecies about Jesus coming, uh, about the Messiah coming. Can you guys give a big round of applause to these guys, please? I'll have them back, yep. You guys can... Keep your poo beer. You know, there's this thing called um, uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, and when you look at Old Testament prophecies about Jesus, the biggest and best place you could go to would be Isaiah. Now, Isaiah uh, has a whole host of really accurate, descriptive words about what the Messiah is going to look like, right? And a lot of people have said, yeah, but you did have the Council of Nicene. And you've got all of these little groups of people, and at any point in time, what you could have done, someone before you, maybe you don't even know, but some, some historian, what they could have done is gone, hey, you know, it's been 500 years since that guy Jesus came. No one knows, but why don't we just write into Isaiah that he's going to be born of a virgin? Because that's what happened, apparently. Let's write that in. And so that was always the argument. People said, well, at any point, we don't know the succession of the document. It could have been... Uh, adapted and changed. Do you follow me? But in 1941, all of that got thrown out the window when they found the Dead Sea Scrolls because the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, uh, which included the oldest known full copy of Isaiah, all 66 chapters, chapters, and they've been carbon dated to the latest, absolute latest. Some estimates are 380 years before Christ, and it's the very lowest one I could find, so we'll go by that, uh, is 100 years before Christ. So there is no way. They have about a 20-year carbon dating window, they believe, uh, with, the, um, with the parchment there. They've, they can get it very accurate. And they've said, they've said, and it's almost completely identical to the canon that we have in Isaiah. So what we know is it wasn't adapted. It wasn't changed because it was literally, they've got a copy of it written before Jesus was even born. So all of the stuff in Isaiah we know factually is accurate and correct. There is the um, Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, that's a really cool, I'd love to go see that someday. That'd be great. So what I want to do is I want to take just 12 scriptures 
uh, in the Old Testament that talk about the character of Jesus. Really quickly, we're just going to go through it. Now, here's the thing. I have only picked 12 for these reasons. These are the ones that Jesus, if you, let's assume that he was a liar, these are the ones that he couldn't fake. He couldn't, he could, he couldn't determine where he was born. Uh, there was a census. We know that. He couldn't determine what people said about him when he was being crucified. He couldn't determine that he would be crucified or that they would do this or say that. So I've chosen these 12. Let's go through them really quickly. Isaiah 7. It says that the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and call him Emmanuel. Remembering 700 years before Jesus came. This is a fact. We know this. And then in Matthew one twenty six, it's talking about the virgin's name will be Mary. An angel is talking and saying that, uh, she says, since I am a virgin. So there we go. There's some, uh, there's some correlation between those two. The second one, but you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come one who will be the ruler over Israel. We see this in Micah. And then we go forward five or six hundred years. And then it says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, um, they said, where is the king of the Jews? Look at the similarities. Bethlehem, ruler over Israel. Bethlehem, king of the Jews, hundreds of years later. When Israel uh, was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. In Matthew 2, we see Jesus escaping into um, Egypt because their babies were going to be killed and then being called out of Egypt, just like the previous chapter. And then in Zechariah, we see um, 30 pieces of silver that were thrown. Then we go to Matthew and we see that um, uh, Judas has been given 30 pieces of silver and he literally throws the money into the temple. They put gall on my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst in Psalms. A few hundred years later, we see it in John. They gave him vinegar when they had received the drink. Jesus said, it is finished. Um, he was assigned a grave with the wicked. Well, this is in Isaiah, so 700 years later. We see criminals were also led out with him to be executed. I am poured out like water, says the psalmist, and my bones are out of joint. Notice it doesn't say broken. And then down the bottom, it says bringing us, uh, Jesus' side was pierced. And he, when it was pierced, a flow of blood and water came out. And then it was also saying in Isaiah that with the rich uh, in his death, he would be with the rich. And then we see that in Matthew when the rich man uh, gave his tomb over to Jesus. He took the body and wrapped it and put it in there. Here's a really cool moment. I hope I explain this well. What used to happen is, you know how we've got like chapter 5, verse 3. They didn't have that in the Old Testament. They didn't have that in the New Testament when we're talking with uh, Jesus in first century Israel's, uh, Israelites. What they would do is this. If I wanted you to understand a piece of scripture, I would start that first thought. Now, this is that first kind of idea or that change of idea, say, in Isaiah. Um, they, later on, they made that. Say, Isaiah, that's the end of Isaiah 6. This is Isaiah 7. But what they would do is they would start the first reading of it. And this is how everybody knew where you were in the Old Testament. They would say Isaiah. And then they didn't have verse 27, so they would say um, you're this, or Psalm 23. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of the death. Every single Jewish person would know, okay, right, we were talking Psalms, and it's somewhere in the middle. And anything, and they had a really good memory. 
they would know that if you started there and then you started quoting further down, they'd know, oh, yes, that's great. So what I might do if I was here, I would say uh, Isaiah chapter 6, and then I would just start reading verse 1, and then I would pause, and if I wanted to get to verse 11, I would just jump to there, to that bit, and say that, and everyone would go, yes, I know where you are, roughly. Now, some people were better at it than others. And so what it did was it was a reminder of what was being said. So when Matthew 27, um, actually, no, yeah, let's go Psalms. It starts, again, the start. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Does that sound familiar to anyone? It's the words that Jesus used on the cross. And so for years, people have been a bit confused as why he said that. But when it's understood in the context of how Jewish people learnt, what he was actually saying is, this is what I'm referring to. What I'm about to say is something really important. And so when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's saying, go to this piece of scripture in your mind and think about it. And so when you read it in Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Verse 8, further down it says, or verse 7, all who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their head. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him, be deliver, let him deliver him since he delights in him. Matthew, he was mocked. He was told if they could save others, then he could save himself. Let God rescue him. So when Jesus is up on the cross saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's referring to Psalms. Psalm 22, and then what about this? Dogs are around me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. 700 years beforehand, he's up there on the cross, bleeding out, and he is telling everyone there, they divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. And we see this in John. They took his clothes and they divided them into four shears. What Jesus was saying there, even in his last breaths, Jesus was saying, guys, get this. I'm quoting Old Testament scripture that is happening right this second, and your eyes are blind to see it. I'm quoting the 700-year-old text, and it is happening this very second, and your eyes are blind to see it. Born of a virgin, born in Bethlehem, spent time in Egypt, betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, crucified, crucified along the wicked, mocked and insulted, his clothes were divided, lots cast for his garments, given vinegar to drink, poured out like water, his bones weren't even broken, he was pierced. There's a lot of evidence here to suggest that Jesus is this Messiah talked about, buried in a rich man's grave. Uh, there's this guy called Professor Peter Stoner, and um, I'm not going to get too heavy into this, but what I will do is on the thread at some point, I will post a link to this guy's 10-page article. And he does the mathematical calculation and the odds that one person, kind of like we talked about here, could just stumble into being born in Bethlehem, um, being born of a virgin, all of the different things that they said that Jesus was going to do. And he, he calculates the odds, and this is what he said. He basically says, the whole state of Texas, if you put silver dollars and you piled them up two feet high and you put one black silver dollar in there, this is the same calculation odds. If I got Matt and I blindfolded him and I told him to go into the state of Texas and just once reach down and grab the black coin. 
that would be the mathematical odds of Jesus just fulfilling eight prophecies from the Old Testament. Eight. I haven't done the maths. I'm not smart enough. But he has. And he said, if you were to just do 16 prophecies, that some random person just happened to do all 16 prophecies, it would be, if you took all of those silver dollars and put them into a ball, and put the ball at the center of the sun, the size of that ball would be almost a Pluto. He said, any man who rejects Christ as the Son of God is rejecting a fact proved perhaps more absolute than any other fact in the world. He was a statistician. Jesus existed. Jesus was the Messiah. Who was Jesus Christ? He was the Son of God. Here's the thing, though, about today. Knowledge isn't wisdom until it's applied. I can know by my head knowledge that if I cross the road with a blindfold, I'm going to get hit by a car. But wisdom is me saying, I'm not going to do that. Even though I know it, I'm not going to do that. It's the application of knowledge. And so I know there's everybody here today. I know there's people here that know the Lord really well. I also know there's people here who've just stumbled in here and you're like, whoa, what is that person doing with their hand up? It's weird. (laughs) I want to say you're welcome here. And I also want to talk to you. That it's cool to know this stuff, and some of this stuff will be really helpful for some of you. You can be like, this is really going to help me with Brian from work, who loves this sort of stuff. I can sit down, I can talk to him. And this is great, but we have to apply it in our lives. The cross requires a response. I've said it before. The cross requires a response. Too often, people, myself, We just, like what uh, Lyndon was saying, we just cruise through church. We just cruise. And there are people here cruising. I don't know who you are, but God knows who you are. And in fact, I even have a challenge this morning, which I would never normally do. So hear my heart. Those who know me know that for for the most part, I'm a pretty loving, gentle guy. Most part. (laughs) Unless you mess with my family. (laughs) I am from the hood. Sorry. I went and visited, who did I visit? Uh, Mike and Margot this week. And uh, I took my shoes off. And then I took my shoes off and then took them inside because I was like, I'm from Hamilton, man. You leave your shoes outside, they're gone. So, okay, right, Dre. Yeah, back to the deep point where I make eye contact. <laughs> the crux. The cross requires a response. And so here we are. This is what I'd like to say. Some of you hear my heart of love But here's a challenge. Some of you call yourselves a Christian. But where you are right now, perhaps, perhaps you shouldn't. You are not representing. That's the challenge I felt in my heart. Now, that's a really hard word to say. And immediately following that, I would say, but God is a God of restoration. God is a God of redeem. God is a God of uh, restoring, redeem, redemption. He wants you to come back. So I know that there is someone here today that's just been coasting. And you're like, you know what? I sort of call myself a Christian, but I do not live for Jesus. I do not walk for Jesus. I understand and I conceptually know. But the gospel message is that he lived and he died for us and that we can have life in abundance, right? That is the message of Easter. So we've taken a weird way to get there. But I want you to know that if you are here today, 
Uh, There's two listeners. There's the first one that know Christ. I want you to know that you should have a reason. You should understand conceptually why it is you believe. I'm sorry, Dad, but don't be like my dad that has no idea and is just following along. Don't just sit in church and just go, I'm a Christian, and, and not ask yourself, why? Why? You should know. Ask yourself the question. Ask me. Ask Warren. Warren's getting all the hard questions. Ask Warren. <laughs> why? So there's those that know you, and I know I'm talking to probably 80% of you this morning. And I hope that you can look at that and go, you know what? I really need to understand. I want to get my explanation of why I believe Jesus down to two minutes. They call that the elevator pitch. If I asked you, hey, Lani, because I'm going to pick on you, why do you believe in Jesus? You know, the hope is is that within a couple of minutes you can say, these are my reasons. Don't worry, I'm not going to get you up there. She's like, I'm not going to make eye contact. Oh my gosh. And then there's those that don't know you. I want you to know that Jesus was a real man and that Jesus was more than that. He was the son of God. Just knowing the truth, can I have the worship team up, please? Just knowing the truth does not set you free. Now, I know some of you are going to go, oh, hang on a second. Just knowing the truth doesn't set you free. There are so many people here. You know, I know that there are people here that know the truth. But, you know, we all know that, well, a lot of us know that Bible verse where Jesus says, um, depart from me you evildoers. And they say, Lord, Lord, I did this and I did this and I did this and I did that for you, didn't I? And Jesus says, depart from me, you evildoer. I don't know you. But these people knew the truth and they in fact interacted with it and they even represented the truth. But Jesus says, depart from me, I did not know you. So we can know the truth, but there's got to be more than that. So at Easter, what I want you to be thinking about is not just knowing the truth, but walking in it. Just knowing the truth does not set you free. Walking in it does. And what do I mean by walking in it? Having a relationship with Jesus every day and just going, you know what? I was here last year. I'm here this year. I was here this last year. I'm going to be here this. I'm walking. I'm learning. I am growing in Jesus. I mean, that's a challenge to all of us, right? Can we stand? Can we just say the cross requires a response? Ready? Three, two, one. The cross requires a response. Don't just sit there apathetically, please. I was talking to a pastor last week, um, actually, uh, Rob and Catherine's son, Peter. He was telling me a friend of his had a friend who had one eye. I know what that's like. But he had a false eye. And when they went to youth group, They went to youth group once, and this guy cockily said to the pastor, well, can you pray for my eye? And the pastor was like, "Uh, yep, sure. Laid his hand on him, and they both fell to the ground. He got up, and his false eye had turned into a living, breathing, real eye. But here's the thing. Knowing the truth isn't enough. Ten years later, he asked about him, and he says, mate, he's not following the Lord. Why, why is he following? He knows that God is real. He had a plastic eye turned into a real eye. That guy knows that God is real. And he was just like, eh, yeah, I, church just isn't for me. So knowledge isn't enough. It takes courage. 
It takes humility to step up and say, God, I, I need to take a step further into you. And there are people here today who are going to say that for the first time, and I encourage you to do so. So, you know, this is Easter. Oh, that's right, we've got communion. <laughs> what we're going to do is um, I'm going to ask you to come up in lines and uh, grab your communion elements. If we could have some of the people just helping with that. And we're going to come back in a moment. And I want you to ask yourself, how do I need to respond, Jesus? And my, that might be for the first time. But in Easter Sunday, the death and the resurrection of Jesus, we need to be thinking about that. Not just thinking, but walking in it. Amen.